0: Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a uh, Bible and want to go ahead and grab it, we will be in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, as uh, Mike just read. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to do a little bit of a survey. Jared did this during announcements, but I didn't get to see it because I was in the back of the room. So raise your hand if you're planning on watching the Super Bowl tonight. All right, raise your your hand if you are like taking a fundamental stance that you will never watch the Super Bowl or something like that. Raise your hand if you're rooting for Tampa Bay, Kansas City. Raise your hand if you're somehow rooting for like the Cowboys, even though they're not in it. (laughs) All right. Uh, Okay, well, it certainly uh, should be a battle of the ages, literally. Tom Brady is a spokesperson for uh, AARP or something like that. Uh, Patrick Mahomes looks and sounds like he's 13. Uh, True story, uh, he was actually born when Tom Brady was already in college. And so uh, certainly it should be fun. If nothing else, I think we'll get to see some good commercials. Uh, I've mentioned before, one of my pet peeves uh, are just commercials in general, but the Super Bowl is kind of the one exception to, uh, to that. It's kind of this cultural phenomenon that there tends to be some really interesting commercials during uh, the Super Bowl. And sometimes you get some real classics. Uh, some of my favorites are uh, the one where Michael Jordan and, and Larry Bird are playing a horse for a Big Mac. Uh, And uh, and so you have like off the scoreboard and you have, uh, they're throwing it out of the stadium and so forth. Uh, Or another favorite of mine is when uh, Betty White is playing tackle football and someone just slams her into the mud. If you don't know who Betty White is, that's not a funny story, but if you do know who she is, it's kind of a funny image. Sometimes you get some really uh, commercials that are just completely out of left field. Uh, Like there was once a a commercial for the U.S. uh, Census Bureau, uh, which means technically that uh, all of you, if you pay your taxes, have actually paid for a Super Bowl commercial. So congrats, money well spent. And uh, and then other times you get uh, commercials that are so annoying that it gets stuck in your head for decades. And uh, and so uh, think of the uh, the the one from uh, years back, the the Budweiser frogs. Now that's stuck in your head the rest of the day. You're welcome. Um, I think it's really interesting, though, to to watch these commercials and to think about the fact that this is uh, for 30 seconds an average of 5.6 million. dollars That's like three times what we pay Tim. Uh, But the goal of the commercial is to create buzz around some sort of product and to generate discussion and to manipulate viewers. And apparently it must be worth it because every year people end up paying millions of dollars and buying those ad spots. Well, I want you to think of the goal of advertisers uh, as it relates to commercials and so forth, kind of as we think about the text This morning. The goal of commercials is simple. It's to sell you a product. In order to do so, they will play on your emotions. That's why they will have uh, this real soft music, maybe by Sarah McLaughlin or something like that. And they'll have puppies and uh, and babies, and they'll even flat out lie to you. They don't care at all. It doesn't matter. Now, compare and contrast that sort of theory of advertising to the argument. that that Paul has been making in 1 Corinthians up to now. Paul, too, is presenting a product. He's promoting something, so to speak, but he's not promoting himself. He's not promoting his own wisdom or his skill or his artistry or his glory. He's not trying to sell you himself. He's not trying to sell his his, uh, autobiography, Better Call Saul Paul, or, or, or his latest sermon series, Seven Steps to Find the Apostle in Yourself, or something. Instead, what he's doing is he's proclaiming. Christ. He's proclaiming the, the message of Christ crucified and resurrected. And along with this distinct message, he is uh, going to utilize a distinct means, not through the manipulation of the truth, but rather through a demonstration or presentation of the truth. And that's what our text is going to be about this morning. So it's a continuation of what we've been talking about over the past few weeks. So let's pray, and then we'll see how he develops this in, uh, in the passage ask you first just to pray for, uh, for yourself as you come in with uh, maybe a, a distracted mind. You're thinking about things that you have to do today. You're thinking about uh, food that you have to make for your Super Bowl party. You're thinking about work or family stuff. And now we pray for others around you, that the Lord would give us collectively a, a heart that would know and love and treasure God and his word. And then lastly for me, that uh, I would be bold and, uh, and faithful, not present the truth in a way that is uh, compromising it or capitulating So Father, we confess that you're good and you do good and we're grateful for your word this morning. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and, uh, and ears to hear that your spirit would work uh, and do what he does, which is to enlighten our, uh, our minds and our hearts to the glory of your son. It's in his name we pray, amen. Let's look at the first verse of chapter 2, First Corinthians 2, 1 says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So a few weeks ago, we were in the middle of chapter one, and Paul was talking about his ministry. If you recall, way back in one seventeen, we read this verse, 1 Corinthians one seventeen. "...for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel." And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul was there talking about his personal ministry, but then he took a break from 18 through the end of chapter one. And in that break, he took kind of a a digression, it's kind of a parenthesis in the text where, where Paul took up the theme of the contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man, the wisdom as the world perceives it, and and wisdom as God perceives it. So that's what we've been talking about over the past two weeks. Now bear in mind that Paul is not actually against wisdom. We've talked about that quite a bit over the past couple of weeks. Instead, he's against human wisdom. He's against worldly wisdom, uh, which isn't actually wisdom. So what's the difference between the two? Well, it isn't just a matter of degrees of wisdom. It isn't that, just, uh, that, that God is just quantitatively wiser than us, kind of like a parent is wiser than a child, not to brag or anything, but I'm wiser than my children, uh, allow me to illustrate that, uh, the other day my wife was at home, I was at work, and she didn't hear my son, which is always a bad sign, and uh, so she went looking for him, and she found him. She found my boy, my sweet, my beloved one and a half year old boy and he was in the bathroom and he was standing over the toilet and he had a metal ladle in his hand and he was dipping it into the toilet and then he was bringing it and drinking it. (laughs) I've not done that in weeks, right? I'm wiser, I know, all right? So I am quantitatively, I'm sorry, I'm quantitatively uh, wiser than my son. But eventually he will learn not to drink from the toilet, at least I hope so. That's part of discipleship, I think. But until then, I am wiser than him. My wisdom surpasses him. And that might be the way that you conceive of God's wisdom. That is not the way the Bible is going to talk about it. God's wisdom, uh, God is not merely quantitatively uh, wiser than us. Uh, God's wisdom is qualitatively different from ours. Our wisdom is always limited. We're not omniscient. There are always potential counter-arguments that we haven't considered. There are always facts that we don't know. For example, to take the commercial illustration from earlier, uh, early advertisements for cigarettes featured doctors. Doctors were actually featured in them, and those doctors swore that this cigarette was actually really healthy, and it would actually help you with a number of these health conditions. Why? Because they just didn't yet possess the information that we now have. That's an illustration of human wisdom. It's errant, it's limited, it's restricted, it's constantly changing. Uh, We've mentioned some of these before. But human wisdom, just a few hundred years ago, assumed that the earth was flat, assumed that the sun and the planets rotated around the earth, assumed that the best way to treat a fever or various other medical conditions was to bleed the patient by leeches or cutting or something like that. Assume that a person's worth was somehow dependent on the color of their skin. Assume that Jerry Jones could effectively manage a football team. There's all kinds of things that human wisdom has assumed. Fortunately, we've evolved. We now know better. Man has reached this enlightened stage in which we now as a culture know biological sex may not match your gender, that a man can be born as a woman or a woman can be born as a Man. Only certain ethnicities can be racist. Any sort of disparity that you see between genders or between races or ethnicities or something has to be discrimination. Or that tearing apart a baby, that isn't cruel, that's actually good, that's compassionate, that's loving. Or that teenagers should be authoritative when it comes to issues like uh, climate control or, 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 or climate change or gun control or, or that science and logic and data and objective truth, these sorts of things, they're unreliable, they're, they're, they're oppressive tools of injustice and on and on we could go. Hopefully you sensed the sarcasm there. That's the problem with human wisdom. It's arbitrary, it's su- uh, subjective, it's fallible, it's ever-changing. So when the Bible is going to distinguish between God's wisdom and man's wisdom, it isn't contrasting these degrees of wisdom Instead, it's differentiating between true, twi- true wisdom and pseudo-wisdom, between wisdom and folly. In other words, worldly wisdom isn't actually wisdom at all. So why would Paul rely on that? That's the point that he's making here. It's like if you knew that the gas gauge on your car is broken, but you decide to set out through the desert nonetheless, just hoping it will, rel- will work. Why would you rely on something that's broken? So in our text today, Paul is going to return from this philosophical distinction between godly and earthly wisdom, and then he's going to take this philosophical distinction and he's going to apply it to his own ministry. If human wisdom is broken in theory, why would Paul use it in practice? In other words, Paul is demonstrating how this hypothetical contrast between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man that we've been discussing for the past few weeks plays out in his personal ministry. He begins by stating a contrast and that contrast presents itself in regards to the message and the means of communicating that message. This message is the testimony of God. You see that there in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Or it could also be translated as the mystery of God. Some early manuscripts say testimony, others say mystery, so scholars aren't sure actually which is original. That shouldn't concern you at all. We've taught about textual criticism before. We have a lesson on it online. You can look on our theological equipping class. But testimony in Greek is the word marturion and mystery is mysterion? So you can see how those might be conflated as a scribe is writing it down. And when we think of the word mystery, we tend to think of some sort of detective whodunit, right? When I was a kid, this will kind of age me a little bit, but whenever I was a kid, the big mystery from, uh, from TV was uh, in the, mo- uh, the, the TV show Dallas. And what was that mystery? What did everyone wanna know? Who shot J.R., right? And for months, no one knew the answer. It was kind of this cliffhanger uh, in the show. That's not the way that Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. Instead, it's more like what, what's called an inverted detective story, like in the old TV show Columbo, if you ever watched that, where you actually already know from the beginning of the episode who the killer is. Uh, that's kind of how Paul uses the word mystery. A mystery in the New Testament isn't something that we don't know. It's something that was previously unknown, but has now been revealed, You see it in a number of texts. I'll just give you one uh, example where you can see this most clearly. Colossians 1, 26. The mystery, mysterion, hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Now, I don't know if the original manuscript of 1 Corinthians 2 said mystery of God or testimony of God, but both words actually emphasize the same point, which is that what is proclaimed in faithful preaching is not human opinions, but divine truth which has been revealed by God himself. That's the point that Paul is making here, that the mystery or the testimony of God is truth revealed by God. It's not something that's discovered by human cunning or human strength or human wisdom or or, or human intellect or human shrewdness. In fact, you could even say that humans don't find this truth, it actually finds them. So that's the message that he proclaims What about the means? Well, Paul says he relies not on lofty speech or wisdom, which isn't a critique of rhetoric or wisdom, but rather an attack on using the art of rhetoric uh, to deceive or to rely on human wisdom as an authoritative guide to reality. Again, think of the, the illustration of a commercial. Paul's not against presenting a product or promoting something, he, he's against uh, using uh, rhetoric, using images, using uh, whatever it might be in order to su- supplement or to distort the truth. That's what he's talking about there. In other words, what Paul's doing here is saying that the, the means should fit the message. If the message is a lie, if the message can't hold up to scrutiny, then the means to enforce that message must also be deceptive. But if, in, on the other hand, the message is truth, then the means should correspond to that message. There's a scene in, uh, in the TV show Parks and Rec that I think illustrates this there's this big showdown between a guy, a character named Chris Traeger, who's the city manager, and uh, Ron Swanson is one of the greatest characters in all of uh, television history. He's the director of the parks department, and they're arguing about who makes the better burger. And so they have this contest, and Chris is this sort of health nut, and emphasis on the word nut, he's crazy. He drives 40 minutes out of town to a store called Grain and Simple to buy ingredients to make his, and this is a quote, I'll read it here, East Meets West patented Traeger turkey burger, an Asian fusion burger made with Willow Farms organic turkey, a toasted taleggio cheese crisp, papaya chutney, black truffle aioli, and microgreens on a gluten-free brioche bun. (laughs) Then uh, Then it's Ron's turn. He just goes to Food and Stuff where he buys all of his food, most of his stuff. And he makes a burger... And he puts it in front of the people and he simply says this. Here's mine. It's a hamburger made out of meat on a bun with nothing. Add ketchup if you want. I couldn't care less. (laughs) All right? Well, who wins the contest? Well, Ron actually wins. Why? We certainly didn't play it up with lofty speech and eloquence and papaya chutney, whatever that is. But rather, he just simply relies on the truth. A hamburger should be made out of beef, not turkey. Or as Ron would say, turkey can never beat cow. So he didn't rely on manipulation. Instead, he just relies on the truth. That's what Paul is doing here. He doesn't have to manipulate because he has the truth. And what truth is that? Let's keep going. We'll see it in verse two. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we were to to make a list, if I were to just have you shout out some of the most misquoted and most most, uh, misused verses in all of the Bible, it would have a a number of verses like uh, judge not, which apparently means that Jesus thinks it's okay for you to cheat on your spouse and to look at pornography or do just about anything else and it's no one else's business. Or, or that God has plans to prosper you and not harm you, which apparently means that you'll definitely get rich, you'll definitely not get cancer. Apparently we could do all things through a verse taken out of context. 1 Corinthians 2.2 uh, two is another one of those verses that people love to misquote. They don't actually understand what Paul is saying though. It's typically misused to suggest some sort of anti-intellectualism. I don't need no fancy book learning sort of idea. I just need to know Christ and Christ crucified. I don't need to know about things like predestination or ecclesiology, that's the doctrine of the church. I don't need to know about logical fallacies. That's philosophy. I don't need philosophy, I just need a person. I don't need theology, I just need Jesus. There are so many problems with that. First, apparently you need to know English in order to say, I just need Jesus. Second, which Jesus? We talked about this in theological equipping today. The Jesus of Arius, a Jesus who isn't divine, who is himself created, the Jesus of Islam, Muslims believe in Jesus. In fact, they respect him as a great prophet. So that Jesus? And then what did that Jesus even do? Did he merely make it possible for you to be saved? Or did he actually save you? Did he die for your sins or did he just die as an example for you? You see, the minute you attempt to say, I just need Jesus, you find yourself in a problem because you have to then define what you mean. In other words, you have to do theology. But thankfully, that isn't Paul's point. That's the third problem with saying, I don't need theology, I just need Jesus because that isn't the meaning of this passage at all. Paul isn't speaking literally here when he says, I decided to know nothing else except Christ crucified. There are lots of other things that he knows. For example, the resurrection. That's a pretty big deal. He doesn't merely know Christ crucified, he also knows Christ crucified and Christ raised. And he knows the meaning of of the crucifixion. he does not, not just that he knows Christ crucified, but he knows why Christ was crucified. And he also knows Aramaic, and he knows Greek, and he knows the alphabet, and he knows the various customs of the day. He knows how gr- Greek sophistry or rhetoric exalted the medium over the message and so forth. There's a whole lot that he knows. Keep reading 1 Corinthians, for example, and you'll see dozens of other things that he knows besides that one event of Christ's crucifixion. So what does he mean? Well, I think this uh, phrase here, Christ crucified or Jesus Christ and him crucified is what's called a synecdoche, which is a figure of speech in which part is used to represent the whole. For example, headlines tomorrow will say that Tampa Bay beat Kansas City or vice versa, all right? Uh, and that doesn't mean that the cities of Tampa Bay And Kansas City engaged in this epic battle. The citizens came out against each other and there was this epic fight to the death. The city names, Tampa Bay and Kansas City, are used as figures of of speech to represent those teams. Or when we say, I have many uh, hungry mouths to feed, that doesn't mean that they're just mouths. They don't have bodies or something like that. Or if your teacher says, all eyes on me, that's not encouraging the kids to gouge out their eyes and throw them at the teacher, Right? These are synecdoches. These are figures of speeches. Likewise, I think that's what Christ crucified is. I think it's the synecdoche, this figure of speech in which this one phrase is used to refer to a much bigger reality. And that reality is the gospel. It's the message of the kingdom. Paul's point is that he's not presenting himself, but instead he's presenting Christ and the message about Christ. And in the gospel is therefore everything that's necessary for every other topic that he's going to talk about. In this book alone, Paul will later talk about sexual morality and church discipline and lawsuits among believers and communion and resurrection and singleness and marriage and divorce and the use of Christian freedoms and rights and spiritual gifts and on and on we could go. And all of those are included under the banner of Christ crucified because all of those are assumed under the worldview of the gospel of the kingdom. Which means that when we say today is that our goal is to proclaim nothing but Christ crucified, that doesn't mean that we're against philosophy or theology or ethics or morality or church history, etc., but rather that we don't talk about any of those things apart from the reality and the worldview of the gospel. It becomes the lenses for us. We'll never outgrow the gospel. We can never say, okay, now I've got the gospel, let's now move on to something else. Rather, the gospel becomes the lenses by which we see everything else. There is nothing else. The gospel now informs and influences the way that we process all of life and reality. In other words, Christ crucified is a way of summarizing the entire gospel, and that gospel should influence and should inform every other reality in life. So if your view of the gospel isn't that big, if your view of the gospel doesn't have that sort of reach, then your view of the gospel is deficient. If when you think of the phrase gospel or the word gospel, you think it's just about how you get to heaven or or just what you talk about on Sundays, then your gospel is far too small. It's far too insular. The gospel informs everything. So that's why Paul says, I know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified because that is everything. Let's keep going. Verses three through four. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. I gave my son a hard time earlier and now I'll give my daughter. Uh, the other day I tried to play a word association uh, with my four-year-old daughter. It started off well. Uh, I was trying to tell her, think of a word or I'm going to give you a word and you tell me the first word that pops in your head. I said, daddy. She said, love. I thought, that's great, right? Then I said, mommy. She said, love. Okay, that's great too. Then I said, Bubba, and she said love, and I said, okay, I I know where this is going. So I changed direction, and I said peanut butter, and she said yummy, which was okay. I was expecting jelly, you know, that's kind of the traditional thing. Then I said tacos, and she said yummy. So then I thought, okay, I need to change my tact again. So I said eggs, which she does not like, and she said not yummy. So the game was a bust, all right? Everything was either love or yummy or not yummy. But if you were to play a word association game with Corinthian culture, and you were to say the word power, they would say love. If you said confidence, they would say love. If you said courage, they would say love. But if you said weakness or fear or trembling, they would say not yummy, right? They do not like that at all. Consider this quote by Quintilian, the famous Roman rhetorician. I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but he is a a famous Roman rhetorician. He said, of all these qualities, the highest is that loftiness of soul which fear cannot dismay nor uproar, terrify, nor the authority of the audience fetter further than the respect which is their due. For although the vices which are its opposites, such as arrogance, temerity, impudence, and presumption are all positively obnoxious still without constancy, confidence, and courage art, study, and proficiency will be of no avail. You might as well put weapons in the hands of the unwarlike and the coward. Tracullus appeared to stand out above all his contemporaries when he was speaking. Such was the effect produced by his lofty stature, the fire of the eye, the dignity of his brow, the excellence of his gesture, coupled with a voice which surpassed the voice of all tragedians that I have ever heard. That's the Corinthian ideal. That's virtue for them. That's what the, pro, the best speaker would have looked like. And yet Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, this same culture, he boasts in weakness. In fact, the underlying Greek words for weak or weakness occur 42 times in the New Testament. 28 of those 42 are found just in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. All right? For those who are weak in mathematics, that's 2 out of every 3 uses are just found in these two letters to this one church. 1 Corinthians 1:27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 4.10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. Uh, you are held in honor, but we in disrepute. 1 Corinthians 9.22, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 2 Corinthians 11.30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And all of this kind of culminates in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but he... Uh, that's, uh, that's Christ, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's point here is that God works through weakness, which is totally countercultural, especially for the Corinthian, uh, culture but actually it makes sense because his point is that our weakness manifests God's strength the weaker we are the stronger God has proven to be when he uses us we used this analogy last week but it's like choosing teams for dodgeball and intentionally choosing the worst players if you win what's the result you get all of the glory Well, that's what Paul is saying. He boasts in weakness because that most glorifies God. God's glory is manifest in the fact that he uses these weak vessels. Now, lots have been has been made historically of trying to understand what Paul means when he talks about his weakness. Uh, And there's been a lot of, uh, of talk about what exactly that particular weakness entailed. Some say that it wasn't very attractive, and so that was a weakness. Or that he has some sort of physical malady, maybe related to his eyesight. Others said it was his, his his occupation, the fact that he labored with his hands as a tent maker, which was seen as kind of a menial task. Or maybe his relative impoverishment was a weakness or, or his regular persecution or his ethnicity as a Jew or whatever it might be. But the point isn't that we define the particulars of his weakness, but regardless, that we recognize that Paul is saying, I don't rely on my strengths. I'm relying on those things that don't show my strengths, but rather show God's strengths. What about the reference to fear? He says, in weakness and fear and trembling, again, much has been made of trying to determine the exact source of Paul's fear. Was it a fear of persecution? Was it a fear of failure? Was it glossophobia, the fear of public speaking, or agoraphobia, the, the fear of crowds? Yet again, that's not the point here. In fact, I, think that, uh, I actually think that the phrase fear and trembling are intended to be read together, read together to refer to awe, the sense of awe, I think that's Paul's point here, that he preached in weakness and reverent, reverential awe because in that he was able to see the Spirit's power. And speaking of the Spirit's power, what does that final phrase mean? In demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Here's how some people uh, take this. Uh, they think that Paul here means that we, we don't need plausible words of wisdom like sermons or theological arguments like we make in theological equipping class. We just need, quote, the Spirit and power. As evidenced by the miraculous, that the kingdom isn't advanced by messages, but rather by miracles. Now, to be fair, Paul has uh, no problem with miracles in general. In fact, he raised the dead, he healed the sick. Even handkerchiefs that had touched him were used to heal people and cast out demons, which is why we're selling elder blessed blankets later. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) So Paul isn't opposed to miracles. He's not against miracles at all. But I don't think that this passage has anything at all to do with what we tend to think of as miracles. In fact, I think if you read miracles into this phrase, demonstration of the spirit and power, it actually counteracts and contradicts what Paul is saying uh, in the context in at least two ways. First, that interpretation. To say what Paul is saying here is that you don't need theology, you don't need sermons, you don't need messages, you just need the miraculous. That interpretation would seem to drive a wedge between miracles and sermons, with miracles being good and sermons being bad. The problem with that, what is Paul doing in this entire section? He's talking about how and what he preaches, right? That's the first problem. The entire context is Paul talking about the importance of preaching, and then this view completely undercuts the importance of preaching. It makes miracles what are really important, what are primary. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that this view wouldn't work because it completely subverts the entire context. Remember, in this section, human weakness is seen as power, Well, human power is seen as weakness. Human wisdom is folly and folly is wisdom. There is this inversion. The kingdom is upside down. The kingdom is inside out of our expectations. But if you think that this passage is saying sermons are dumb, miracles are awesome, that would just play into those very existing human presuppositions that Paul has already counteracted. His point here is that what's impressive from man's perspective is not necessarily what's impressive in the kingdom. So it would seem inconsistent for Paul to turn around and rely on something else that is impressive in the world's eyes. That would basically make the flow of the passage into something like this. I, Paul, don't rely on one thing that's authoritative in man's eyes, that is fancy speech, uh, eloquent uh, uh, words of wisdom, rhetoric and so forth, but instead I rely on this other thing that is also authoritative in man's eyes, which are miracles. So if the demonstration of the spirit and power isn't referring to the overtly miraculous, what does it mean? Well, I think that Paul is here saying that the spirit himself is the power behind the preaching of the gospel. So Paul doesn't have to add anything to the message. The authority of the gospel lies not in the power of the speaker, but rather in the spirit. So Paul is happy to boast in his weakness because the weaker he is, the more obviously powerful The Spirit is when he transformed the hearer through the gospel. I think that's the power of the Spirit that Paul is talking about here. The power of the Spirit to work through these broken instruments like Paul to transform God's people through the message of Christ crucified, which is folly to human wisdom. So I think the Spirit's the one who is on display here and uh, his work is in the transformed community. The power of the Spirit there is the power of the Spirit to work through the gospel, this broken medium from a human perspective, to actually accomplish the goal, which is the transformation of God's people. So Paul's approach was rooted in this theological conviction. And let's look at the next verse so you can see the the hope or the goal. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So this is Paul's point here. This is what he's been working toward in this section. Why is he contrasting human wisdom uh, that's manifest in human power and cunning and skill? Why is he contrasting that with the wisdom of God that's manifest in human weakness and fear and trembling? The reason is so that the faith of the Corinthians would be tethered to something that's actually substantial. So something that's actually uh, secure, to something that's actually a good refuge, to the correct anchor. Uh, Imagine if you will, that you you look at a cloud and you think, wouldn't it be fun to lie down on that cloud? It looks so soft, it's like a big pillow. If you ever uh, have flown and you fly through the clouds and it looks like, man, that would be great just to lay down on. The only problem with that is that clouds are made up of billions of, of little droplets of water and you can't even lay down on water. Unless you have a sweet waterbed or something like that. So how could you lay down on a cloud? Or imagine thinking, maybe I can escape the rain if I just simply hide under the cloud. Well, that cloud is kind of like human wisdom. It might look secure. It might look like a good refuge, but it's not. It's a mist. It's a fog. It's a vapor. And if you're trusting in that cloud for security, for refuge, for hope, and you're in trouble. This is why Paul is so passionate about anchoring his ministry to something that's not changing, to something that's not a vapor. That's why he's so passionate about anchoring his ministry to the gospel, not to human cunning, not to human skill that relies on how eloquent the preacher is or whatever it might be, not to cultural virtues or whatever it might be. And this will be really important for understanding the rest of this book. The entire book of 1 Corinthians depends on you understanding this distinction that he's making in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, why? Because Paul is going to need to address some really important issues in this book, like marriage and sanctification and the resurrection, etc. But the problem is that human wisdom in each of these areas is gonna distort, it's gonna obscure the way that we perceive reality. It's like one of those carnival mirrors. You ever been to a carnival and you look in a mirror and it makes you appear too tall or too short or too fat or too skinny? That's what human wisdom does for us. It doesn't help us to perceive reality. It actually distorts reality. So Paul is going to be addressing a number of really vital topics over the next 14 chapters. But each of them only makes sense if you're actually wearing the right lenses, if we're not thinking in worldly terms with worldly presuppositions. Let me give you a couple of examples of those. In chapter 5, we'll encounter the question of sexual morality. Well, human wisdom, human presuppositions, worldly wisdom would say, My body, my choice. Who are you to tell me how to live? But godly wisdom says, You're not your own, you're bought with a price. Christ has created you and he has redeemed you. Therefore, it's not your body, it's his body. Chapter six, we'll face the question of lawsuits among believers. And human wisdom says you gotta get your money, right? You can't let someone take advantage of you. You gotta stress and fight for your rights. Godly wisdom says maybe sometimes it's better to be defrauded, to be taken advantage of. At the very least, this should be something that we try to figure out within the context of the church Rather than law courts. In chapter seven, we'll face the question of divorce and remarriage. Worldly wisdom says if you're unhappy, if you're quote, emotionally abused, if you don't love him anymore, you should just leave. Human wisdom says your feelings are authoritative, they're trustworthy. Godly wisdom says something else entirely. And we could do that in chapter 8, in chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. In other words, Paul, what Paul is doing in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, chapters 1 through 3, is going to be absolutely vital and essential for us as we read the rest of the book. In these introductory chapters, Paul is handing us a pair of prescription glasses because without those glasses, we can't read and understand anything else he's going to address. So he hands us these lenses so that we might have eyes to see, and so that's my hope for us, as we keep moving through this book, that we would be willing to confront our own presuppositions, our own assumptions, that, that we might repent of our uh, worldly values, in order to really embrace the kingdom made manifest in Christ. That we would confess that we're far more foolish than we might believe, and that would then push us to run to Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I confess, Lord, that it, uh, it confronts our pride and our presuppositions every single day. Every single day there are things that I assume to be true because I, my assumptions are influenced by my flesh and by culture. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might think of you rightly so that we might live rightly. We might love others as we should. We might understand who you are and what you have done for us. That you would give us the lenses by which we might view life and reality and walk accordingly. We pray these things because you're a good father and you give good gifts. And so you've not only given us your son, you've not only given us uh, the, the death and resurrection of Christ, but you've also given us scripture and you've given us Uh, your spirit. And so I pray for his help. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.